I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to The Voice of Insurance. Welcome to this special episode, supported by Worry and Peace. In my job, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, and particularly insurtech entrepreneurs. Very often, I find that they know their tech, but they really haven't yet got to understand the insurance world. And that often means that they are solving problems that perhaps don't exist in the minds of insurance people, and their businesses are unlikely to succeed. Well, today, I'm talking to a startup founder who has insurance running through his veins. James York knows the insurance value chain inside and out. Because of that, he knows that anyone who can cut into the savage acquisition costs that insurers load onto themselves year after year is onto a winner. In an industry that spends billions on marketing, anyone who can make that spend more effective is going to be in high demand. James is the founder of Worry and Peace, which is aiming to do just this via the medium of insurance reviews. It's a bold and extremely ambitious global vision that goes way beyond reviews and into a whole insurance ecosystem that will aim to bring buyers and sellers together in a trusted world, but which isn't actively trying to sell insurance to anyone. Are you intrigued? I certainly was. And the more I talk to James, the more I think he's onto something. I think you should hear him out. Enjoy the podcast. Well, James, thanks so much for giving us some time. Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and what gave you the idea for Warrior and Peace? Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. So the journey to creating Warrior and Peace is peppered with failure. Let's get that out there in front. I don't think a lot of people talk about their failures. I tried to sell insurance and in the language of kind of band parlance, I had a tough second album. I couldn't quite get, you know, second and third products that were of good quality. And in the meantime, I'd spent a lot of my capital on some great technology. So if you mix it with, you know, that triumvirate of product creation, opportunity cost, and then cost to get to market, it just started to dawn on me that there might be an easier way. So that phrase, isn't there, we hear in conferences, Mark, you'll probably grin when you hear it. Insurance is sold and not bought. And it just kept picking at my head. What if I didn't sell it? All of these problems I faced in terms of opportunity cost, trying to put insurance in one place, would it be easier? It's no less without challenges, but that's what gave me the idea. So I took all the tech that was powering my selling bit and I started to reconfigure it and started a process of taking one company out of another. So it wasn't really a pivot, it was more of a split. And had you worked in insurance before you went out to become an entrepreneur? Yes, I had. So the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. It's in my family blood. They were wholesalers. They were involved in the Cullum Capital Ventures kind of consolidation spree. And definitely being honest, I started the journey of entrepreneurialism before I was ready. And absolutely a few years of kind of MBA and reality hit me. I was an AR of Towergates for a while, and then we set up as a directly authorized business. So it was quite a journey before I really started getting going. This has been a, a good eight years in the making. Worry and Peace only started probably four to five years ago. And as, as I said, has, has turned into a tech business from selling. So it's about finding a way, isn't it? A lot of the time in entrepreneurism and, and that perseverance piece. But yeah, there's been experience with Catlin, WR Berkeley, THB Group, and some great people met along the way. So you've had a good apprenticeship. And just for listeners who don't know their abbreviations, AR would be appointed representative. So let's get on to Worry and Peace. What is it and how did you come up with it? Worry and Peace is, in its simplest form, Mark, an alternative to comparison sites. Whisper it. Because as soon as you say that, it has lots of connotations, doesn't it? And, and I'm sure other questions for you. The idea came from, as I said, could I build a technology platform that transcended regulatory borders, put the buyer in the middle? and didn't have a lot of the, the downsides that would come from selling insurance. So everything insurance, regardless of model of selling in one place, 
kind of network, more social network than comparison site. And how does it work? So it's non-linear to start with. I mean, everyone, and this is one of the things we struggle to communicate in our pitch has got a lot better at. Everyone thinks of insurance as, you know, someone looking for cover, getting quotes, buying, maybe claiming, renewing, and going through that. And that's what you mean by linear. So it's like a, a, a straight line process that something happens and something else happens and something else happens. Exactly. Because I'm not selling and don't earn money from the process of a sale happening, i.e. no commission or CPA as the comparison sites would earn. We can view the market in a non-linear way. So we've built three distinct softwares for before, during, and after the sale. The after the sale software is reviews, which of course everyone knows synonymous with the likes of Trustpilot and FIFO. During the sale or during quotation process, we've built a wallet, which has its own mailbox, a bit like DMs on LinkedIn. So if you're buying insurance, why send it to your email, put it into your wallet and what can the system learn from you? And then you've got the front end before the event, searching, looking for insurance. How can we take the data from those other experiences and make for a better search in the future and keep that cycle rolling? So three distinct softwares, effectively non-linear for before, during and after purchase. And ultimately, we can meet a person, a buyer, as we call them, anywhere whether they've bought from somewhere else or whether they're looking for something through us to start with or have just had a document shared with them by a peer or an employer. And how do you get people to get on the thing? Which of those three pillars is the one that is getting people on board first? Is it the reviews? I think of you as reviews and I know about the other parts, but I always think of the reviews first. Is that right? Would it be right for people to think of you as an insurance review site? Reviews led, absolutely. I think reviews is going to be the thing that ignites our marketplace. Look, what we're building here in short order is a marketplace and everyone will have heard of the chicken and egg problem. You know, when you're trying to create something and you require ignition of two sides of the market, where do you start? We started with faith. You know, I think that God particle is the piece is have a mission, stand for something and then pick a side and start. So we began building the marketplace with providers. And what we looked at was, you know, a model where acquisition costs were quite high. You've got big search and comparison, which both in their own way are great. And if you leverage them properly, can bring you huge benefit, but also come with big downsides. And of course, you've got that in the retail space, especially the lack of conversion. You're buying a lot of quotations and most of those buyers are not in effect going to buy from you. They're going to look at your quote, pick it up, shake it, put the box down and head somewhere else. So there's a lot of inefficiency in that model. And that's where reviews can come into play. Presently, Mark, they're only really used after purchase. And that doesn't work for insurance because when you think about what the product is, it's a commoditized purchase process quite often, but the actual use of the product rarely happens. In fact, that's the design of the whole premise of insurance is that most people don't need to use it, otherwise it wouldn't probably work. So if you're only asking for feedback from the very few people that have checked out from the hundreds you've met and given a quote to, and then most of them are thinking, well, I haven't even used the thing yet. Is the experience really being properly registered? Is the promise worth the price? And that's what we focus on reviews for. And of course, it's a source of traffic, let's be honest. And so you're really trying to get at that. People have a hit rate of 2%. You're actually looking at the 98% to find out why you wasted money getting your quote in front of the 98% that actually just ran off somewhere else. That's it. And that's where the saving is. And is that why you get people to partner with you? How many partners have you got? Is the model really that you're looking for insurance businesses to plug in with you so that you can help them find where they're going wrong in their marketing spend effectively. Yeah, it's a mutual gain. And actually on the quotations, we've done customer research with YouGov Direct, who we've partnered with as well. And we found out that actually people do want to give feedback before they've made a decision. Now that sounds critical. I'm actually interested in who buyers don't pick. 
I can recall, I think you live in Richmond, Mark, if I asked you to recommend a couple of good restaurants, you might throw in the primary recommends, but you might also tell me where to avoid. Now, when it comes to feedback and reviews for a purchase that we call a grudge buy, it's useful information, isn't it, to know who not to spend all your time with on these big forms and long processes. So actually, we're quite keen in that. Have you picked yet? And who's winning? Who's in pole position? And when you think about the industry's use of outbound and all that kind of hassle factor, knowing if a buyer is actually interested in buying your product above their other choices that you have no idea about. You don't know how many there are and who's winning. But equally, you've got a little comment, a little bit of feedback that adds some social context. You can, in my view, arguably decide who to call. The person that hasn't engaged at all and given you no information or the person that's saying, do you know what, Mark, I think I might pick you, but here's the reason I haven't yet. And then, of course, you've got all of that after the purchase. What did we do wrong? If an unhappy buyer tells more people than a happy one and you're only asking for feedback from the people you know liked you, I'd argue again that the reason you're doing that is probably strategically incorrect. And that's why we think we can help providers. James, there are tons of review sites. You mentioned a couple, Trustpilot, FIFO, and we're bombarded by them all over the place. And everyone's completely familiar with the concept. But don't you think the big global dominant players have already emerged out of that? So why do we need an insurance one? Trustpilot is a review site everyone knows. And there's this view that, of course, because everyone knows it, everyone wants to review brands on Trustpilot. But most of its traffic came from brands themselves telling the buyers to go there. So it's not that buyers somehow decided Trustpilot was more trustworthy. Of course, the reviews come from individuals. So it's not Trustpilot itself that's creating any kind of additional value. It provides a platform. My view is that it provides quite a narrow lens, particularly for insurance when it comes to its model, because star averages, Mark, are, of course, in their very nature, an average score. Now, we've just described that most people in insurance don't use the product. The biggest problem with insurance is trust. So if the tiny minority of people that actually use the product are actually reviewing, are they ever going to have an effect on an average score? It's a numbers thing, isn't it, without going into the math of it. So star averages for us don't give the real picture. And actually, one of the things we should mention on Worry and Peace reviews is we differ. We don't use stars, not to be difficult, but we use medals, gold, silver, and bronze, so a bit more Olympic. And a complaint is not a one or a two star. It's just a slip up. And we actually value resolution. So we've got features for that too. But we let people review at quotes, at purchase, at support, and at claims. And that can be put in a table. And when you start to read star reviews, Mark, actually read them and translate them into our format. You can look at two 4.7 out of five brands in exactly the same class of business, put them into that table, and one of them's got a lot more positive claims reviews than the other. And that's where it starts to create context. And that's what we're trying to pick a thread at. Now, I think we will go back to being much more simpler than just these tables. But for starters, just unpicking these really overly simple average scores for our particularly complex product. I think there's a lot of missed information going out there and people are picking the wrong products. So with yours, you've got these multiple different segments. And do, yes. or do you combine it then to, into a big score at the end? Or can everyone dig into those individual parts so much? They're really bad at quoting, but then the price is good. And actually, the claim service is fantastic or whatever. Or do you then turn that into a gold, silver or bronze? Yeah, you're ahead of the curve there. And look, I'm, I'm happy to, this is a bit of a under the hood sneak peek right now as we speak. We're building a software that's going to translate third-party reviews automatically and put them into a, effectively an average score, which we can plot on a graph. We can say, look, here's provider A, here's provider B. This one's better than the other one in context. And that's really good because, of course, we've got to be pragmatic. As you said, people are already using Trustpilot and FIFO, and you mustn't always blow against the wind. We think our reviews are better 
and that people should wholesale switch, of course, but we have to fit in around the existing commitments they've made and costs they've put in place. So how can we use the current reviews better to give better context for buyers and honestly, better strategic data for the C-suite? Because at the moment, very complex businesses selling multiple product lines across multiple different experiences for the buyer are cramming everything into a star review. And if a C-suite are looking at that and thinking, great, we're 4.7 out of five, I'd say you're not seeing the real picture. Your KPRs, your OKRs aren't there. Whereas if you put it into our format, we can still come back with that simplicity down the line, the sentiment score, you might call it, but the detail is easy to see in a table format. And you know, we've done that. When you said about two different 4.7s, one could be a combination of incredibly cheap but a very small amount of very, very poor claim service. Another might be not quite so cheap, but such brilliant claim service that um, they've managed to get their average right up. There's much more detail in there. Totally. And, and look, that, that may not matter. That's the ideal we're after here. If we show two different people, two medals tables and say, which one would you pick? They might each say a different brand because who's to say that one buyer isn't too fussed about the claims experience because they don't think it's going to happen to them. But you're giving them real choice and real context. Whereas 4.7 out of five, the only context they have is the number of reviews that have contributed towards that and their general knowledge of that brand. So this is all about value proposition, which is the problem insurance has. That's our pitch to the market. Ultimately, our earlier pitch is we're an alternative to comparison sites and we're actually focused on the value proposition about finding the promises worth the price. And if you've got a great service and you really care about your game, then our platform's going to help you sing and project. So at the moment, what's the revenue model? Is it mostly getting carriers to sign up and do you charge them for the insights that they're going to be able to get into their wasted acquisition costs and making them be more focused on the things they need to improve? Yes, we sell software. So our software is billed monthly. You can actually join for free and run a pay-as-you-go model. All of the features of Worry and Peace, i.e. inviting reviews, depositing documentation or triggering things in our wallets or advertising on the front end, they're all powered by a simple credit right? And you get a certain amount of credits for each pound. So you can, in Worry and Peace's world, you can actually use your cash to either do operational things like trigger reviews or go out there and get new business once that marketplace starts to ignite, which as I've said at the moment, is probably secondary to getting the products on the shelves for the buyers. So we've really had to, if you imagine two bars either side of the marketplace, we've had to kind of jump from each one to try and build up the providers and then get some buyers in and then get the providers engaging more. And that's a really difficult balance. But yes, we sell software to providers and we subsidize buyers. And that's not to say that we can't offer a paid model to buyers down the line. You know, something like Spotify is interesting to me. Are people actually wanting to see insurance ads at all? So I'm thinking, oh, you know, maybe there's an element there of adding more value on the the software side for them. So we have real flexibility once you remove that commission urge. Equally, Mark, and I know you'll ask me this later, it makes us a non-threat to providers. If you send me your customers and I log them as yours and give you some feedback and my database remembers that Mark knows Aviva or Direct Line, is my motive to move Mark from either of those brands to someone else? Well, no, because I don't earn money by Mark moving. I earn money from putting Mark in the middle and helping buyers better engage with him. But at the same time, you are onboarding those consumers, those buyers of insurance through your relationship, your B2B relationship with the carrier. And they're fully aware of that. Are they happy with that? Well, they have to be. Yeah, they have to be for the model to work for sure. I mean, look, the the litmus test of this is go to any insurance brand, Mark, and find if they're linking to Facebook and Twitter. And that's the test. And once you put the context in, if I follow 
Aviva on Twitter, Twitter does two things with that. Firstly, it goes, oh, who else might you like to follow? So my attention is going to be diluted from that one-to-one relationship. And secondly, it might even embed advertisements in that feed of Aviva's. So Aviva are happy to point to that, happy to tell people to go and follow them on there. And they're raising a flag. These are all our customers. Come and pitch to them too. The worrying peace model is very different. We're saying, send us all your customers and we're going to remember they know you potentially so we can try and show them more of your things. And that's that's fascinating. Obviously, there's a, another side to that where if you perhaps had a poor experience with one brand and we knew they were part of a group, our algorithm could potentially warn you and change what you see in search. But we want to put you in charge of that or at least give you that information. Oh, you don't like direct line? Maybe heads up, Churchill are the same company. So it's about balancing the force, I guess, in the insurance market. And providers do have to trust our model behaviorally gives us a different motive that we don't want people to move. And look at comparison sites. Fundamentally, they need people to move in order to make money in the majority of their lines of business. What sort of percentage of people are the sort of people who will give a review? What sort of engagement do you get with people when you you say, hey, I see that you've just dropped out of our thing. What could we have done better? Or you've just bought some insurance. Can you tell us about your experience, et cetera? What sort of engagement are you getting? There is review fatigue out there. And we have both anecdotal and real data to talk about that. And again, let's go back to where reviews are being requested. I've gone through this really long process of choosing between providers. I pick one, then they invite me to review them. I haven't used the product yet, haven't made a claim. So my mindset is thinking, who am I reviewing for, me or you? And what are you going to do with this? Well, you're going to go and pitch to Joe and Jane blogs and try and get them to buy your product, which they may or may not use. So that's why we think review fatigue is taking place in insurance. Change the question, and which we've done on consumer feedback, ask people if they'd like to review at the quote stage before they've made a decision, and it leaps to around 48% of people saying they would be interested. Now, of course, whether people actually act upon what they say they would act upon is, is different. There's a lazy factor to it. But again, if you think about, turn a pyramid upside down and visualize it, Mark. The top is the quotes, the bottom is the reviews and the purchases. If you're asking people at the top and only 8% of people respond, you're still going to get more reviews in the aggregate than you would right down at the bottom through the plug, through the, the bottleneck. So even if people behave exactly as they do now with star reviews and you ask in a different place, you're going to get more data. So review fatigue is tolerable in our model, if that makes sense. We also think there's a thread here. Reviews need to be about you, you the buyer not me, the provider. If I make the reviews a case of you programming an algorithm, a search engine to know what you like and don't like, and to remember the things that you like and don't like, so you don't have to, reviewing becomes quite a convenient thing to do once or twice a year. Instead of I'm doing a provider a favor who I probably don't trust, selling me a product I probably won't use. Those two things are behaviorally very, very different. And we think at scale, our model will start to resonate. Obviously, we're a long way from being perfect in that model, but that's the right wrong. If I've summarized, at the moment, you're getting insurance companies and insurance distributors to sign up with you. And then you're onboarding, you're asking people for reviews, then you're onboarding them to become, well, why don't you join War in Peace as a member and we'll look after your insurance for you. We'll have this wallet and inbox and we'll cut out all the spam and then we'll start to be your insurance hub. Is that sort of right? What sort of conversion rate do you get? You put a thousand people into the hopper at one end asking for reviews. How many do you get as fully fledged consumers who are Warrior and Peace signed up? That's exactly the model. And yeah, ask me in April because unforgiving and repentantly, we've been onboarding the market. We think we're there now. We've got 125 managed providers. I've just booked a campaign with a big 
newspaper to start testing, hey, we're here, you know, here's a wallet, here's reviews, here's a search bar for specialist insurance. And those numbers are going to start coming in. Our hope is in the meantime, as we start to scale our organic growth and our acquired growth, is that we get some earned traffic from the market that says, do you know what? To their board of directors, I do only convert 10% of my entire traffic. Why don't I throw it at worry and peace and see what comes out of the wash? What have I got to lose? It's going somewhere else anyway. At least I'm hedging my bets here. So it's an insurance policy for my marketing spend. So that I don't think is going to be a quick win. You and I both know the sector is heavily built on network. It's slow to procure, but quick to follow quite often. So we've really just been building reputation quite patiently and try not to be too desperate to say, please, please give us all your customers. Because of course, this is about trust too. We need the providers to trust that we're not going to steal their customers from them. And we need the buyers to trust that we're not just trying to sell them insurance. And that's a really delicate game that I think you've got to be patient about. We could have gone out there and raised tens of millions of pounds and thrown it all at TV ads with fluffy toys and other bits. I've tried to be the tortoise as opposed to the hare. And I think that will eventually ignite the ecosystem. But for sure, the test will be what the data starts to look like once we start getting acquired and organic traffic of our own, how that filters through. So this quarter mark will start to produce data on that front. It'll be humble. Watch this space. As an insurance journalist writing about InsurTech for the last four or five years, insurance wallets, I've seen quite a lot of them and written a lot about quite a lot of them. So What's different about yours or anything special about yours, James? Yeah. So, I mean, firstly, it doesn't come with a sale. A lot of wallets are sort of, I'm selling you this and you get this extra wallet. Please put everything else here. Well, of course, the buyer sees that coming a mile away. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll add all my other products and then you'll try and sell me those. Again, removing the sale fact, that's what makes the wallet different. It's also very open, meaning that in theory, anyone could put documentation in it from any journey themselves. So if Direct Line wanted to integrate with our wallet, they could do. It's available now. The APIs aren't public, but they're there and they're being used by a few other startups. So we've been testing this thing. I mean, the wallet's been used now by 40, 50,000 people from quote to purchase. So it's quite well tested. It's about to have a massive update released. What will make it quite different is it's much more social. So here's two case studies of how you could use this. Three, actually, three. The first one is you buy an insurance policy with a company in your name and your spouse is named on the policy, but they're not technically able to make any changes or log in online. In the Worry and Peace wallet, you could choose to share a pouch, as we call it, with someone else. So you could share it with your spouse or even your business partner, right? So here's our insurance. There you go. Anything happens to me, it's there. The second use case is something like employer's liability or uh, an employer benefit. If you and I were working for a company right now, we're all in separate places. They have a legal obligation to maintain EL, employer's liability, and show us the certificate. Usually it's in a kitchen somewhere, isn't it? On a dingy... Next to the health and safety. Next to the health and safety. Why not put it in a digital place? Where's the digital kitchen? Well, it's a wallet. So, you know, it's online. So in theory, someone could share EL certificates. And that's very interesting for commercial brokers because, of course, buyers of insurance don't use their own staff's demand to pay for the employee benefit stuff. And I think there's an element there. The third use case is proof of insurance. Mark, I'm commissioning you to commission a podcast on, you know, training for insurance. And I just need to check, by the way, now, have you got PI insurance? You know, how could you share it with that? So that's what makes the wallet very different. It's both a repository and also a social network kind of element for what you do with that evidence of insurance. And it's three-dimensional. You're in the middle. There's a pie chart around you. And you can chop that up into as many insurance products as you want and have a bilateral relationship with each one. And then the real benefit, I suppose, for the consumer is you don't have to fill in proposal forms a million times. All that data is in there 
and they know that you don't have this type of mortise lock and that you may be near a floodplain and all the other stuff or that you're over 75 and you have a heart condition but you still want travel insurance that kind of stuff yeah it's convenience right and yes the holy grail would be to know lots and lots about mark the buyer so that when he logs in to search prices pop up in front of him across various types of insurance so instead of again think about it from a non-linear way and it take you have to break out from that quote by renewal model you could not even be looking for insurance and there's still prices in front of you because of the things that our platform will start to know about you and those preferences so that's the holy grail that's the destination for us obviously it's a journey and technically do you have to be regulated as a broker in some way no we don't actually make any income from the sales process so as, as long as our messaging is pretty clear on that any provider that you engage with has the liability for what they're saying in the listings. All of the search results are user-generated content that are loaded by the providers. So, And they have unlimited users, by the way, there, and there's no cost per user. So if you're a broker, you could put all your staff in or put all your listings online and the compliance officer could take a listing offline if there was any errors in it or you'd stop selling it and they could amend it in real time. So it's like sending a tweet. Twitter isn't liable for advertising insurance to an insurance buyer, nor the content of the tweets. It's the the regulation of the user themselves. So in technology terms, I should describe you as a marketing technology business. So MarTech, which I know is like a whole subsegment of technology, rather than a pure insurtech. Yes and no. I think we have a MarTech, but the wallet and the direction of travel, as I mentioned, we have a reviews API at the moment. We have a product API, which is going to go live at some point this year. And we have a quote API in the making. That's going to be very heavily insurtech led. But for sure, the theory of this platform could work in other sectors. There's no reason why it couldn't be like a white collar checker trade meets comparison site kind of model. You know, we're effectively tendering for services. It's not a tangible product we're selling here. So anything that's a PDF or context is is tradable on this model. We just know a lot about insurance. So we're going to stick around here until we've we've scaled it across the world, hopefully. You mentioned about starting uh, to get out there with marketing. Is this the sort of thing that's going to need tens, hundreds of millions and TV ads and equivalent? Obviously, you're not going to use meerkats or opera singers, but does it need that kind of scale, that kind of in-your-face or red telephones, things that we've grown up with now, the hundreds of millions, to really get that ignition that you talk about? It depends on how balanced the seesaw is between providers and buyers. If providers were to effectively use our reviews, and link to their page of worry and peace like they do Twitter and Facebook, which if you look around the insurance internet mark, some are, and that's very open network building, then no, we won't need any marketing budget. That would be the holy grail, right? We could build an insurance ecosystem, a network with the existing traffic that's not being properly used at the moment. Let's be honest and pragmatic. You could wait around a long time to try and create that, or you can go and kickstart it and ignite it with a, a catalyst of marketing spend. So yes, we do think it will require a little bit of marketing, Our actual preferred approach is to find affinity and partnership, build pods of providers that would all quite like to pitch to that particular group and power it, power the interaction, because it's very expensive for a broker to do a deal with a local football league or a trade union or a trade association on their own. But if we get a few of them, we can crowdsource, crowdfund both choice for the members and also run it through our platform. And of course, if we've got the process of gathering the questions, getting the providers, we can automate the reviews as well. So we can run two of our apps across that process. That should be cheaper. So that's effectively just using lead generation as a route to market. We've already done one partnership. I'll be out the end of Feb with a trade association and there's more in the pipe. So that's cheaper, of course, but I think it would be prudent to put a bit of advertisement out there as well and just raise the flag and try and make people aware of what we're doing because I think it's quite a nice model. Puts buyers in the middle and creates fair terms for providers that 
they're not going to try and put them on edge year on year. And just to really clarify, so once you're within the Warrior and Peace as a consumer, obviously you're effectively in, almost like inside a marketplace and you're going to be offered. And you can move from one incumbent, if Aviva was a member of yours, for example, you could definitely move from them to somewhere else and that won't get you in any trouble. Yeah, you could. And you do at the moment. I mean, Aviva probably spend tens of thousands of pounds a day on Google and Google is not saying to someone, oh, Mark, you know, I thought you really liked your Aviva home insurance. Why are you searching for someone else? I think there's an insight opportunity there. And also the reason people move quite a lot is because they know, don't they, that they don't really have a clue whether the promises that they're getting given are worth the price. Because of course, the only, as we've discussed, the only metric they've got is 4.7 out of 5 by 5,000 people and typically after purchase. So there's not much to go on at the moment in the insurance market. My hunch is that we could see a situation where loyalty is a bit more earned because of the process. And if we're not pushing Mark to go and shop around, maybe we can be a bit more of a arbitrator when they do shop around or he does go and look for something. And that has a derivative effect as well, Mark. I might know that you like direct lines, home insurance, and then you go and search for car insurance. Should I show you all of direct lines family of underwritten products for that particular thing because you really liked the home insurance? Or does it only matter when you've had a claim paid by a particular company? You might have had a business insurance claim paid by Hiscox. And then when you look for cycle insurance, we might show you Bicmo. So where we see the big picture of the market, we can be a really useful search engine in a way Google just simply can't. And that's actually even more of a problem in America where they have state by state permissions. So what sort of stage in your development are you at? Obviously, you seem to be that you're sort of an accelerating phase. I mean, how many people have you got working in War and Peace right now? Three full time. We've got a handful of advisors, really preeminent ones as well. And we've got some fantastic consultants and we've got people ready and waiting to come and work full time later in the year who've been prepped and spoken to. So what stage we're at? I would say early still, very early stage. And rightly so. We've got to build the foundations here. If we were building St. Paul's Cathedral, and you looked at it right now, we'd barely be above sort of three courses of bricks, I would argue. But shortly, there's going to be some really functional facilities to use. And that's really exciting. The growth can then follow quite quickly afterwards. So one of the things we're doing, it's a bit geeky for those tech people out there, is at the moment, we're looking at our server capability. So we're moving to a new cloud infrastructure, which will enable us to scale the business. Because of course, you've got to be able to scale as well as get the bums on the seats. Your infrastructure has to be able to handle it. So that's a really key part of our progress at the moment. That, I would say, is probably more important than getting volume of, of buyers through the door, is being able to meet them if and when a provider chose to send them to us as well. So it's an infrastructure piece as much as anything else for us. And that's really exciting. Because it has to work all the time because no one tolerates the thing not working. Okay, what if everything goes absolutely to plan? What's the end goal? What, you know, is it five years' time? Are you going to be like Jeff Bezos now, finally retiring after 30 years and handing over to the cloud guy? What is the ultimate end goal, James? If everything goes to plan, what sort of business would we be looking at in 10 years' time? Well, what could it become? It could absolutely become a vast business because if you take the one statistic, Geico spending a billion dollars on acquisition a year, that's just one company in the US market. Our model does not have any barriers in terms of regulation. So in theory, we, we could create a worry and peace platform in any country with an insurance industry. So that's fairly substantial. The tactics I've talked about today about using reviews to get traffic for nothing effectively, so everyone wins, is scalable. So we could build something here that has a hyper-valued endgame. Whether someone spots that now, next month, next year, en route, in three years' time, every time that happens, you have an obligation to your shareholders and your team who've obviously got vested interest in it to present 
offers as they come. And there's an example, isn't there, of Snapchat turning down an approach from Mark Zuckerberg to sell the business. I think you've got to measure things as they go. I definitely take things day by day. I'm very mission orientated. So it isn't about the money for me. It would be lovely, wouldn't it, to be remembered like Sir Captain Tom. (laughs) So to have a legacy. And I genuinely think our industry is great. I think we undervalue ourselves. I think people don't like us without realizing that it's a wonderful social network we've got here. And my whole model is kind of predicated around not having that guilt complex of trying to sell the thing. I just sell the vision of it. So the exit for me is, is about delivering a bit of a, an improvement on relationships between buyers and providers. In reality, I think that will become a very attractive proposition to acquire in the future. So are you, are you a sort of 10 years, build a business and then go and buy a yacht type person? Or are you the sort of, no, I want my name above the door and I want it to be hand to my grandchildren type business? No, it's neither of those. Obviously, I'd love to pay off my mortgage. That'd be my first goal. I'd love to be financially independent after being an entrepreneur for a long time. As an entrepreneur, you've always got the next idea, Mark. So I'm confident if someone did buy Worry and Peace, I'd find something else to pour my love for insurance through or whatever else I've learned. So I will absolutely look to exit the business and get a return for investors. There are lots of ways to do that. Whisper it, but you can IPO a company. I have no idea how I would do that, but I love learning. So I'm sure I've got people around me that could help. You've got to get through the hurdles of raising capital, generating income and growth, and then being able to succeed at that. So no, it's not about quick in and out. If anything, I would see it as a step, you know, a staircase. If I did exit Worry and Peace, that would only motivate me even more to take another step up and do something even more ambitious. Well, we look at the market cap of Lemonade um, hungrily and, and with salivation as we do that, because I think it's a $9 billion at the moment. Obviously, I think it goes up and down by 10% any other day, but very, very impressive. So thanks very much for giving us a walk through everything Worry and Peace. What's your kind of final takeaway? What's your message to any listeners who would like to engage with you? What should they be doing? Everyone in the insurance industry is always and also buying insurance. So if you want our industry to prosper, let's get behind our own network. Back yourselves, because that's what Worry and Peace is doing. Come along, find someone, search for a provider you've just got a quote from, try out leaving a review, have a look at our wallet, tell a few people about it, and see if you can speak to your colleagues in your business to give us a chance to engage with you. Now, you don't have to dive all the way in and pay us money. You can grab your page on Worry and Peace and play around with it for free. Or you can start to think about how strategically our toolkit might work for your company. And not every tool is going to work for everyone, Mark. So it's just about having an open mind and engaging and being able to tell another person, what's worrying peace then? It's an insure tech that's building an alternative to comparison sites and it doesn't sell insurance. And that's the key messaging. Well, thanks so much, James. I've really, really enjoyed it. And uh, make sure you come back and give us an update. It sounds like everything's moving extremely fast. Thank you. No, I really enjoyed it too. And I hope it all made sense to everyone. And just as a point as well, my DMs and LinkedIn is always open if anyone wants to connect. I'm also obviously doing a bit of work in the sector and always keen to hear about and trade war stories and help other people out there. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>